Hello, welcome everybody. You're listening to the New Discourses Podcast, and I'm James Lindsay. And long promised, finally getting to this, going to start a series reading through Herbert Marcuse's 1969 essay on liberation. So I previously on the New Discourses Podcast did a series of Herbert Marcuse's 1965 essay, uh, Repressive Tolerance. I've quoted at length in a couple of other episodes here on the podcast from his 1964 book, One Dimensional Man, which of course I haven't read the whole book and don't intend to. But here we have his 1969 essay on liberation. So just to very quickly frame this out, I think this is going to be in four parts because the essay is in four parts. It's quite long, like repressive tolerance. In fact, it's longer than repressive tolerance. Give you a quick overview of who Herbert Marcuse was and what liberation is about, and then we're going to dive into this essay. This is going to be the first part of the essay, um, which covers, I'm not kidding, a biological foundation for socialism. And so this is a very chilling essay. So Herbert Marcuse, just to kind of frame out who this guy was, if you're not familiar, if you haven't listened to the Repressive Tolerance uh, or other podcasts I've done regarding his work, was probably the foremost radical left thinker of the 1950s and 1960s. He was the director of the Frankfurt School as it had moved to the United States. Um, He's what I would consider the heart of the second generation of the Frankfurt School. I kind of see it in three distinct pieces. And the first was Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, uh, and some others. And they really took it in a particular direction to critique enlightenment, to critique society to develop the critical theory. And then you have Herbert Marcuse come along and he's much more radical in the post-World War II era than his predecessors that he had worked with all along. And so he's a very prominent, very um, influential thinker from the 1960s. His 1964 book, One Dimensional Man, sold maybe 300,000 or more copies in the year of its publication, so a year after its publication. So you can imagine that this guy is a a lot of copies of a book, and it's a whole lot of copies of a book for the 1960s. This guy had a lot of influence on left-wing thought. He's considered the father of the new left, the radical new left. He also is one of the people, if you read through One Dimensional Man and some of his other writing, that made it so that there was going to be this idea of infiltrating through the intelligentsia, infiltrating into the university, bending the arc of research, uh, or bending the arc of activism into research and scholarship and teaching. Um, one of his most famous students is Angela Davis. Angela Davis got hit her, her doctorate from Herbert Marcuse at uh, University of California. And she is obviously one of these very radical thinkers Um who has been profoundly influential on the development of critical race theory. She's been profoundly influential on the prison and police abolition movements, which she's still integrally involved in. She's featured as one of five voices uh, or profiles in Ibram Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning, his book that precedes How to Be an Anti-Racist. So Herbert Marcuse's legacy is profound in radical left thought. He was a strong neo-Marxist thinker with a lot of influence that bent the radical left in a particular direction along with a handful of other people. Um, So that kind of gives you an idea of who Herbert Marcuse was. I don't want to dwell forever on this. He took up this cause of liberationism. Of course, liberationism is, you know, tied up in Marxist thought going back. They're going to liberate from communism or sorry, from capitalism and, and make the way for communism. They're going to 
liberate people from the oppression of the capitalist system. But there's also the liberation movements that were happening around the world after World War II in particular that were liberating from colonialism. There's a way that you can think of World War II very realistically as the end of the great European colonial project, realizing, for example, that building empires the way that we had done militarily and seizing territory uh, is not acceptable with modern weapons of war. That's one way to read some of the lessons of World War II. And colonialism rapidly started to fall apart. And due to thinkers like Franz Fanon, who we'll focus on at some point in the future here on the podcast, and many other people across the radical to regular, everyday thinking, liberal and classically liberal thinkers, colonialism was losing its moral imperative and collapsing around the world. And a lot of that was being taken up by radicals in those countries under so-called liberation fronts. They were going to liberate from their colonized status. Um, the most famous of these, I mean, there are many liberation fronts. Uh, they were all very radical, very dangerous things. Most of them were fronts for communist projects. The most famous is probably the Vietnamese Viet Cong, uh, which was actually a liberation front uh, that was taking place in, in, in that context. And so Marcuse's project linked up with this, and liberationism becomes kind of the big, uh, becomes kind of the big way of thinking that this is what kind of replaces the the communism of earlier Marxism. So neo-Marxism is now stepping away from overt socialism and communism. Antonio Gramsci's socialism is exactly or precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity is now giving way to this liberationism. You see liberation theology arising in the South American context. You see black liberation theology under James Cone arising in the Protestant context. Liberation theology was mostly Catholic. All of it was under the umbrella, though, broadly of kind of this new Marxist thinking that was going to look at things in, in cultural institutions and it was going to throw off the oppression of the capitalist, broadly intersecting oppressions society in which they lived. And so this essay from 1969, this is after the radicalism of 1967 and 1968. It probably came on the back of repressive tolerance, which I still argue is Marcuse's uh, one-dimensional man is obviously his largest and most significant contribution, but I think we live in the logic of the essay uh, Repressive Tolerance now, which has the thesis statement that movements from the left must be tolerated even if they're violent, and movements from the right must not be tolerated even to the point of censorship and pre-censorship to prevent their ideas from even forming. And I think we see that playing out very clearly now. Well, 1969, a few years later, after the radicalism, the violence of 67 and 68, we have the essay on liberation coming out. Uh, from Herbert Marcuse. And I've wanted to read through this. This is a little bit of a scary essay, frankly. Um, like I said, it's in four parts. The table of contents reads, preface, introduction, one, a biological foundation for socialism. That's as far as we're going to go today. Two, the new sensibility. This is actually where he talks about the role of aesthetics. I find it's very important to set up the rest of the essay, but it's a little bit abstract, in my opinion. Um, three, subverting forces in transition. So this is where he's really linking it to these liberation movements. And then four, solidarity. So solidarity is obviously very key, a very key word we hear from the woke. It's a very key word that has been all throughout this whole idea. Liberation 
doesn't occur until the, the least of us is liberated, the most subaltern, the least able to speak, until they, or what we, what we hear that no lives matter until black lives matter, or when black lives matter, all lives matter. Therefore, we have to be acting in solidarity with those more oppressed than us. And that's actually the leverage that they use to try to force their very radical politics. Because when they say black lives matter, what they actually, of course, mean is black activists. Uh, activism life matters. Uh, and until they are getting their way, what they're saying is that, that that we won't have lives mattering. And by default, when they get their way, all lives will matter. As you will see, the logic of this essay explains that liberation is the required state to achieve freedom from all of these different um, forms of oppression. So let's just kind of jump in. The preface of this is going to actually talk about these liberation movements uh, and the relevance to Marcuse's thinking, how he's linking his neo-Marxism, his critical theory-based neo-Marxism, to liberationism. And they're kind of fusing. That's kind of what defines, in my opinion, the second generation of Frankfurt School critical theory thought, the first generation being more abstract. The third generation actually softens. That's Jürgen Habermas. And it's mostly irrelevant. I think there's a fork in the road, in fact, between how we characterize the third generation of critical theory and the Jürgen Habermas Frankfurt School, qua Frankfurt School line gets soft and becomes largely irrelevant, maybe academically interesting, but not otherwise. Whereas Angela Davis, I think, picked up the radical torch and the radicals took off in another direction, mostly through things like black feminism, aspects of radical feminism and other forms of radicalism. And they really started to infiltrate in particular into education and higher education and academia more broadly, very intentionally going into the 1970s after the Vietnam War, which we were just mentioning. So the preface to um, Herbert Marcuse's 1969 essay, An Essay on Liberation. And so I'll link the essay in all of the relevant text. You should follow along if you can. I'm going to read it as I've done the others and comment upon it. Herbert Marcuse writes, The growing opposition to the global dominion of corporate capitalism is confronted by the sustained power of this dominion, its economic and military hold in the four continents, its neo-colonial empire, and most important, its unshaken capacity to subject the majority of the underlying population to its overwhelming productivity and force. So productivity is bad. This global power keeps the socialist orbit on the defensive. So now we have this framing that there's this weird capitalist, corporate capitalist dominion that's keeping the socialist orbit on the defensive. So you can see the two poles and if we're talking about liberation, we're going to be liberating from the corporate capitalist environment to open the door for what? The socialist orbit, which is stuck on the defensive. So this global power keeps the socialist orbit on the defensive all too costly, not only in terms of military expenditures, but also in the perpetuation of a repressive bureaucracy. The development of socialism thus continues to be deflected from its original goals, and the competitive coexistence with the West generates values and aspirations for which the American standard of living serves as a model. That again is bad, and the socialist model is supposed to replace this. But what we're going to hear in this essay actually is that Marcuse, and just to kind of prime you for this, is actually going to complain about socialism as it went through the 20th century. 
He's going to make the case that not only is the global corporate capitalist power structure a problem, but he's also going to say that the reason that things like Leninism and Stalinism, and even to a degree, although less for him, because you're going to find out he's really, I'm not even going to just take him right off the list. He likes Mao. He's down with Mao because he doesn't really know what's going on in China uh, in 1969. Um, So Lenin and Stalin, though, he's aware. Khrushchev has come out. Khrushchev has confessed the sins and crimes of Stalin. There's no getting around it. This is the crisis of neo-Marxism in the post-war era, um, post-1950s era in particular, when Khrushchev has has to come out and tell on Stalin to keep his power. And so he's going to go into why the communist project of the USSR also failed. And he's going to criticize that, and he's basically going to try to make the case that it made some of the same mistakes. And in fact, that um, partly it's going to be this competitive coexistence with the West, which generates values and aspirations for which the American standard of living serves as a model, but also the perpetuation of a repressive bureaucracy, which he sees in both the capitalist context and in the failed Stalinist Soviet context. So back to Marcuse. Now, however, this threatening homogeneity has been loosening up, and an alternative is beginning to break into the repressive continuum. This alternative is not so much a different road to socialism as an emergence of of different goals and values, different aspirations in the men and women who resist and deny the massive exploitative power of corporate capitalism and uh, even in its most comfortable and liberal realizations. The great refusal takes a variety of forms. So now we're talking post-1968, Herbert Marcuse is talking about something completely new. He's saying socialism, the way that we tried to do it before, is not what we're after. And this is crucial to understanding the emergence of wokeism and what wokeism is after now. The road to socialism, he said, this is the alternative is, he says there's an alternative rising up to the repressive continuism. And it's not so much a road to socialism as an emergence of different goals and values, different aspirations in men and women who resist and deny the exploitative power of corporate capitalism. Even when it's comfortable and liberal, even in its most comfortable and liberal realizations. So it's still not good enough to live in a comfortable liberal society. We've got to throw that off. New goals called liberation are arising. He's seeing this in the liberation movements. He's reading it in the idea of liberation and recontextualizing that. What we're seeing is a massive dialectical shift in the language of Hegel or Marx. We're seeing a massive Hegel. We're seeing a massive dialectical shift from communism to liberation. And he calls this the great refusal. And we've talked before, and particularly you see this, I think, in One Dimensional Man, where Herbert Marcuse talks about negative thinking, and negative thinking becomes positive. And I've said this in the, the Communism Doesn't Know How podcast that I did, that they believe that if you can just pull off all of the negative, awful things, if you just take away all of the contradictions and problematics of society, the, the good, perfect utopia will blossom out of this and grow out of this. This is the hermetic thinking at the heart of all Hegelian dialectical thought. It's the magic of the Aufheben, of the uh, sublation as it gets translated into uh, communist literature or Marxist literature. And he calls it the great refusal, the Marcuse does, where the great refusal of global corporate capitalism or even just corporate capitalism and the great refusal of Soviet bureaucracy. There's a great refusal and liberations on the other side of it. And so where does he look for inspiration for his liberation and the great refusal? Great places. Listen to this. In Vietnam, in Cuba, in China, 
A revolution is being defended and driven forward, which struggles to eschew the bureaucratic administration of socialism. No kidding, Vietnam, Cuba, and China. China. This is Mao. This is 1969. The Cultural Revolution took place from 1966 to 1976. Of course, all that's coming to the West is massive propaganda. But this guy's going to be tapped into some communist stuff, so he's going to have some sense of what's going on in China. He's like, oh yeah, this is great. Cuba. Cuba. That worked out wonderfully. Vietnam. Not so good. But what does he say? A revolution is being defended and driven forward which struggles to eschew the bureaucratic administration of socialism. So in China, you're going to have Leninism with Chinese characteristics under Maoism. A cultural revolution is taking place. Not what Lenin did, not what Stalin did. Now we have Leninism 3.0 under Mao, and we're going to do something completely different, and it's going to eschew the bureaucratic administration of socialism, which is not at all what was going on in China for real. The guerrilla forces in Latin America seem to be animated by that same subversive impulse, liberation. So liberation is the name for this new impulse that's arising in people, liberation from societies that work. At the same time, the apparent impregnable economic fortress of corporate capitalism shows signs of mounting strain. It seems that even the United States cannot indefinitely deliver its goods, guns and butter, napalm and color TV. It's a very interesting sets of parent guns and butter, napalm and color TV. Napalm. Well, it seems like the United States has been pretty good at continuing to deliver its goods. So in 1969, this was a little bit of a uh, misdiagnosis of what might have been going on. But what he says, the ghetto populations may well become the first mass basis of revolt, though not of revolution. The ghetto population. So here's where you see those seeds that that Angela Davis, for example, is going to run with. This is where you see Herbert Marcuse saying, wait a minute, let's turn to the ghetto populations, by which he obviously is going to mean, you know, black, urban, and other racial minority urban populations. And they are going to become, he's not talking about Jewish ghettos. Uh, they may well become the first mass basis of revolt. So now you have the turning toward race politics right here. Racial identity politics for liberation. So black liberationism comes out of this. Women's liberation, sexual liberation are all connected to it. Eros and Civilization was his 1955 book, which is also about sexual liberation. But he also identifies it's not just going to be the ghetto populations. He goes on to identify students. So it's going to have something to do with using students, just like in China, under the Cultural Revolution, under the Red Guard. And the advantages of that, this is what these communists in the 1960s were looking at. They were looking at China and saying... This long march through the institutions that Mao is instituting that's ultimately rooted in Gramsci's ideas is a good idea. It's probably the case that by 1969, Marcuse would have read Gramsci. Gramsci was translated into English in 1970, one year later, by Pete Buttigieg's dad, Joseph Buttigieg, at Notre Dame. So it's very likely that he would have read this. So he now appeals to the students. The student opposition is spreading in the old socialist as well as capitalist countries. In France, it has for the first time challenged the full force of the regime and recaptured for a short moment the libertarian power of the red and the black flags. So he's nodding to Antifa here. Moreover, it has demonstrated the prospects for an enlarged basis. The temporary suppression of the rebellion will not reverse the trend. 
So he's believing that in France, basically, Antifa is the trend, and that this liberation, even in France, will not be ultimately suppressed except for a short time. None of these forces is the alternative. However, they outline in very different dimensions the limits of the established societies, of their power of containment. So he's like, you get wild enough, get radical enough, get liberationist enough, and these existing societies can't contain you. When these limits are reached, the establishment may initiate a new order of totalitarian suppression. But beyond these limits, there is also the space, both physical and mental, for building a realm of freedom, which is not that of the present. Liberation also from the liberties of exploitative order. A liberation which must precede the construction of a free society, one which necessitates a historical break with the past and the present. There's a whole lot going on right there. There's a whole lot going on right there. So let's take it apart a little bit. When these limits are reached, the establishment may initiate a new order of totalitarian suppression. So what he's saying is that to contain movements like Antifa, to contain movements like wild guerrilla liberation, the state's going to have to crack down. And so this is a signal. This is exactly the trap that Donald Trump got put in um, last year when wild Antifa, Black Lives Matter rioting was happening in cities like Portland and Seattle and Minneapolis and so on. Does he send in the National Guard? Well, if he does, he's going to get said to have sent the military after American citizens. But if he doesn't, they get to just carry on, which is what happened. And um, he's framing it out. And this is what you have to understand about the left's dialectical moves is that they win a framing war. Whoever wins the frame wins the argument. And they're not, they don't have the argument. They don't have the evidence. They don't have the moral high ground. So they have to set up the frame. So they frame it this way. When the limits are reached, when you finally drive people nuts enough with your stupid radical activism, the establishment may initiate a new order of totalitarian suppression to put you under control. And he says, but beyond those limits, there's also the space both, phys both physical and mental for building a realm of freedom, which is not that of the present. So he doesn't believe that the free society is actually a free society, but rather we can have full liberation, a liberation that he says we have to, that must precede the construction of a free society. So he doesn't believe that a free society is possible until we get to something that he calls liberation. Liberation is actually the it precedes it. It's the utopian thinking. It is the dialectical progression of whatever communism is supposed to represent as the end of history under Marx. It is the immunitization of the eschaton, as Eric Vogelin describes the end of history uh, when the absolute idea wakes up for Hegel. So a liberation which must precede the construction of a free society where everybody's equal and then everybody's free because then we have true democracy. And he says that this necessitates a historical break with the past and the present. So we have to have a completely new world order. It would be irresponsible, he writes, to overrate the present chances of these forces. This essay will stress the obstacles and, quote, delays. But the facts are there. Facts which are not only the symbols, but also the embodiments of hope. They confront the critical theory of society with the task of re-examining the prospects for the emergence of a socialist society qualitatively different from the existing societies. The task of redefining socialism and its preconditions. So now he's, this is what I'm saying. He wants to escape capitalism, but he says, what we've tried with socialism so far didn't work. Socialism so far, Stalin's idea didn't work. Remember, he's looking to Mao for inspiration. He's looking to Castro for inspiration. But... 
the task of redefining socialism its preconditions is something he's talking about. So now we're going to have a new socialism, and that's what this essay is about. In the following chapters, he writes, I attempt to develop some ideas first submitted in Eros and Civilization, and in One-Dimensional Man, then further discussed in Repressive Tolerance. And in lectures delivered in recent years, mostly to student audiences in the United States and Europe. This essay was written before the events of May and June 1968 in France. I merely added some footnotes in the way of documentation. The coincidence between some of the ideas suggested in my essay and those formulated by young militants was, to me, striking. Yeah, ideas have consequences. And your ideas are bad. And the consequences were bad. How about that? He goes on. The radical utopian character of their demands far surpasses their hypothesis of my essay, and yet these demands were developed and formulated in the course of action itself. They are expressions of concrete political practice. Radical utopian character far surpasses this crazy essay. Concrete political practice. The militants, he writes, have invalidated the concept of utopia. They have denounced a vicious ideology. No matter whether, sorry, no matter whether their action was a revolt or an abortive revolution, it is a turning point. It's aborting the existing society, aborting the possibility of a different new society like a socialism. In proclaiming the quote permanent challenge, the permanent education, the great refusal, they recognize the mark of social repression, even in the most sublime manifestations of traditional culture, even in the most spectacular manifestations of technical progress. They have again raised a specter, and this time a specter which haunts not only the bourgeoisie, but all exploitative bureaucracies. Marx didn't go far enough. It's not just the bourgeoisie, but they're all exploitative bureaucracies have to go. This is probably reflecting upon the failures of Stalin but while glorifying Mao. The specter of a revolution which subordinates the development of productive forces and higher standards of living to the requirements of creating solidarity for the human species. So we're going, they've, they've, they've raised the specter of a revolution which subordinates the development of productive forces and higher standards of living to the requirements of creating solidarity. So solidarity more important than productive higher standards of living, etc., for abolishing poverty and misery beyond all national frontiers and spheres of interest for the attainment of peace. In one word, they have taken the idea of revolution out of the continuum of repression and placed it into its authentic dimension, that of liberation. This is all just, of course, rhetoric. The young militant, the communists don't know how. Liberationists don't know how either. They're just going to rip everything apart and we'll be liberated from all the things that aren't great. The young militants know or sense that what is at stake is simply their life, the life of human beings which has become a plaything in the hands of politicians and managers and generals. The rebels want to take it out of these hands and make it worth living, but they don't know how, so they're going to wreck everything. They realize that this is still possible today and that the attainment of this goal necessitates a struggle which can no longer be contained by the rules and regulations of a pseudo-democracy in a free Orwellian world. To them, I dedicate this essay. That's the end of the preface, and we move on to the introduction. Up to now, it has been one of the principal tenets of the critical theory of society, particularly Marxian theory, to refrain from what might be reasonably called utopian speculation. That's kind of not true. They're pretty thoroughly utopian while saying they're not utopian, 
but apparently we're going to have to change this. Social theory is supposed to analyze existing societies in the light of their own functions and, and capabilities and to identify demonstrable tendencies, if any, which might lead beyond the existing state of affairs. By the way, Henry Giroux in On Critical Pedagogy def defines that as utopia. Uh, I don't have the paragraph in front of me to read it to you, but he actually defines utopia as the ability, the capability, to identify demonstrable tendencies which might lead beyond the existing state of affairs. Very vague, right? Doesn't You don't even know what it looks like. Theodore Adorno kind of echoes this. He says there is no positive way to cast a picture of utopia. It's you only can tear away that which is wrong with the existing society and let the utopia emerge. There's no positive vision of a utopia. Herbert, uh, um, Henry Giroux, the critical pedagogist, the father of critical pedagogy that's ruining our schools, doesn't have a vision for utopia. He says that it is to be able to even be able to identify demonstrable tendencies in Herbert Marcuse's words, and he cites Marcuse repeatedly in that book, uh, which might lead beyond the existing state of affairs. It's all fantasy. This is all a, a nightmarish fantasy for these people. They think that there's a perfect world if we can just get rid of all the things that they don't like in the existing world by any means necessary. By logical inference from the prevailing conditions and in institutions, Herbert Marcuse is writing again, critical theory may also be able to determine the basic institutional changes, which are the prerequisites for the transition to a higher state of development, higher in the sense of more of a more rational, sorry, I messed that up, higher in the sense of a more rational and equitable use of resources minimization of destructive conflicts and enlargement of the realm of freedom. So we see equity coming into the pl into play here in 1969 in Herbert Marcuse's writing. Social equity theory emerged as far as I know in 1968 uh, in, in other domains. So equity, this is really the emergence of the idea that equity is going to replace communism. We're going to have a more equitable use of resources. And it'll be more rational in the sense that uh, it accords with critical theory because remember that's what critical theorists mean by rational because otherwise you are not acting rationally you're acting in terms of the heteronymous interests that are telling you how and what to think so you're only rational when you're a critical theorist okay so higher in the sense of a more rationable and equitable use of resources minimization of destructive conflicts and enlargement of the realm of freedom but beyond these limits critical theory did not venture for fear of losing its scientific character right. I believe this is a problem for him now. Critical theory hasn't gone far enough and he wonders how it's movement in, in, the, in the 1970s, like a few years later, he's on TV with, um, I think Brian McGee or something like this in an interview. And he's complaining about how his own movement lost its intellectualism. It's become so anti-intellectual. How did this happen? And he just said, you know, it's not critical theory didn't go far enough. It, it didn't venture far enough in fear of it losing its scientific character. So there you go. There's your answer, buddy. Um, I learned it by watching you, Dad. Uh, learned it from you. So back to Marcuse. I believe this restrictive conception must be revised and that the revision is suggested and even necessitated by the actual evolution of contemporary societies. The dynamic of their productivity deprives utopia of its traditional unreal content. What is denounced as utopian is no longer that which has no place. That's what utopia literally means and cannot have any place in the historical universe, but rather that which is blocked from coming about by the power of the established societies. So when I get accused of saying that what they actually believe is that utopia is what's already there if you just get rid of the power structures that they don't like, in other words, you give them the power, I'm not wrong. 
what is denounced as utopian is no longer that which has no place and cannot have any place in the historical universe, but rather that which is blocked from coming about by the power of the established societies. Utopia is already here. That's what he believes. We just have to peel back the existing power structures of society, which can be done by giving the rational people, the liberationists, the critical theorists, all the power. I am dead serious that this is how they think about the world. Utopia is there, except it's covered up with rotten, dirty power dynamics. And if we could just rip those away, which is achieved by giving them control and power, then the utopia is already there. That seed of gold inside the shell of lead will blossom if we can just get that lead off of it, and the base metal will be transformed into gold. This is the alchemy of Marcusean thought, of critical theory thought, of neo-Marxism of liberationism. This is the thing that Black Lives Matter, critical race theorists, queer theorists, etc. are fighting for. That utopia is that which is blocked from coming about by the power of established societies. That's what they want. Liberation is setting it free to grow and blossom into the perfect world. Nobody knows how it's going to work because it's already there. All you have to do is get rid of the power of the established societies. Utopian possibilities, he writes, are inherent in the technical and technological forces of advanced capitalism and socialism. The rational utilization of these forces on a global scale would terminate poverty and scarcity within a very foreseeable future. But we now know that neither their rational use nor, and this is decisive, their collective control by the immediate producers, the workers, would by itself eliminate domination and exploitation. So what he's saying is we learn the lessons of Stalin. We can't just have a workers' party. We can't just put the proletariat in charge. This isn't going to work. This by itself cannot eliminate domination and exploitation because he says a bureaucratic welfare state would still be the state of repression which would continue even into the, quote, second phase of socialism when each is to receive, quote, according to his needs. Notice he doesn't use the word communism to describe the second phase of socialism when each is to receive according to his needs. Hiding that a little bit, isn't he? What is now at stake are the needs themselves. At this stage, the question is no longer how can the individual satisfy his own needs without hurting others, but rather how can he satisfy his needs without hurting himself? without reproducing through his aspirations and satisfactions his dependence on an exploitative apparatus which, in satisfying his needs, perpetuates his servitude. So again, the critical theory idea is that the everyday person is reproducing a terrible world, no matter how much he likes it, no matter how free he feels, no matter how much freedom and enjoyment and happiness and contentedness he has, he's actually reproducing through his aspirations and satisfactions and his false consciousness his dependence on an exploitative apparatus which in the act of satisfying his needs perpetuates his servitude. You feel free, you feel happy, you have a great life, well, you're middle class, upper middle class, well, actually you're a slave. And you don't even know it because you have false consciousness. That's Herbert Marcuse's basic thesis. He knows better than you. And he's going to set you free to the utopia that's already there if we just get rid of all of the power of the established society. That's what he's saying. The advent of a free society would be characterized by the fact that the growth of well-being turns into an essentially new quality of life. This qualitative change must occur in the needs, in the infrastructure of man. 
itself a dimension of the infrastructure of society. Everything is infrastructure, isn't it, guys? But we're talking now about the infrastructure of man. It's wild. The new direction, Marcuse says, the new institutions and relationships of production must express the ascent of needs and satisfactions very different from and even antagonistic to those prevalent in the exploitative societies. Such a change would constitute the instinctual basis for freedom, which the long history of class society has blocked. Freedom would become the environment of an organism which is no longer capable of adapting to the competitive performances required for well-being under domination no longer capable of tolerating the aggressiveness, brutality, and ugliness of the established way of life. Hold up. Freedom would become the environment of an organism, which is no longer capable of adapting to blah, blah, blah. Freedom would become the environment of an organism. So he's saying if we can just get the environment, we need to get the organism to the point where it can no longer adapt to competitive performances required for well-being under domination, no longer capable of tolerating aggressiveness, brutality, ugliness, and so on, by creating an environment where that's the only kind of thing that can, can, can thrive. We have to create that liberated place where only the, the only people who can survive are the people who can no longer adapt to the competitive performances required for well-being under domination. Because we're talking about changing the needs the infrastructure of man itself to change the which is itself a dimension of the infrastructure of society we're talking about some eugenics level stuff here we're talking about changing man fundamentally to make him suited to his new non-bureaucratic socialism that he calls or communism really that he calls um liberation the rebellion he writes would then have taken root in the very nature the biology of the individual and on these new grounds, the rebels would redefine the objectives and strategy of the political struggle in which alone the concrete goals of liberation can be determined. So we don't know how, in which alone the concrete goals of liberation can be determined. We, they can only be determined when you redefine the entire objectives and strategy of the political struggle based on changing the biology, the nature, the very nature of the individual. Is such a change in the nature of man conceivable? I believe so, because technical progress has reached a stage in which reality no longer need be defined by the debilitating competition for social survival and advancement. The more these technical capacities outgrow the framework of exploitation within which they continue to be confined and abused, the more they propel the drives and aspirations of men to a point at which the necessities of life cease to demand the aggressive performances of earning a living, and the non-necessary becomes a vital need. The so-called non-necessary, it's in scare quotes. This proposition, which is central in Marxian theory, is familiar enough, and the managers and publicists of corporate capitalism are well aware of its meaning. They are prepared to, quote, contain its dangerous consequences. The radical opposition is also aware of these prospects, but the critical theory, which is to guide Political practice still lags behind. Did you catch, just to, before we go on, critical theory lags behind, right? But they want to, he wants to propel the drives and aspirations of men to a point at which the necessities of life cease to demand earning a living. And that's a non-necessary leisure becomes the vital need. Somebody else is going to do all the work because we need to be able to just 
our vital need is to do that's what that which is not necessary to do. This is where liberation is. It's 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 in not having to do anything. That's vital. The non-necessary activity, screwing around, is what everybody gets to do all the time. And this proposition is central to Marxian theory. But people are suppressing it and containing it because why? They want to continue exploiting you. That's why corporate capitalism is doing it. They want to keep exploiting you. And he says the reason we haven't got there is critical theory, which is to guide political practice, still lags behind. It isn't there yet. And he goes on, Marx and Engels refrain from developing concrete concepts of the possible forms of freedom in a socialist society. So he did, Marx and Engels did not articulate what it looks like when you get to a liberated communism. Today, such restraint no longer seems justified. The growth of the productive forces suggests possibilities human, of human liberty very different from and beyond those envisioned, envisaged at the early, earlier stage. Moreover, these real possibilities suggest that the gap which separates a free society from the existing societies would be wider and deeper precisely to the degree to which the repressive power and productivity of the latter shape man and his environment in their image and interest. So he's like, if we can just change how the world works, we're going to be able to change man to need the world to work in a different way. It's dark stuff here. And remember, the first section in this Beyond the Introduction, which I'm reading now, is a biological foundation for socialism. That's with a question mark, actually. So well, let's get closer to that. Marcuse goes on, For the world of human freedom cannot be built by the established societies. Freedom is not possible in any of the existing world orders. That's what he's saying. For the world of human freedom cannot be built by the established societies, no matter how much they may streamline and rationalize their dominion, their class structure, and the perfected controls required to sustain it, generate needs, satisfactions, and values which reproduce the servitude of human existence. This voluntary, that's in scare quotes, servitude, voluntary inasmuch as it is introjected into the individuals, there's your false consciousness, you believe that you're voluntarily participating in the society that you are content and enjoy, but it's actually servitude and you think you're, you think you're doing it voluntarily, that's what he's saying, you have false consciousness, he knows better than you, he knows better, the critical theorists know better than you, the liberationists know better than you. And you don't even realize the conditions of your servitude. You think you're voluntarily uh, participating in, 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 the, in the world, the exploitative world that he describes. This voluntary servitude, which justifies the benevolent masters, can be broken only through a political practice which reaches the roots of containment and contentment in the infrastructure of man. Can be broken... <laughs> This condition can only be broken through a political practice which reaches the roots of containment and contentment in the infrastructure of man. Remember, that's biology. A political practice of methodological disengagement from and refusal of the establishment, which in critical race theory and introduction we hear is the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, and enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law, for example aiming at a radical transvaluation of values. So we're going to create wholly new values, radically new values for human beings by breaking the contentment in the biology of man so that man is no longer content with his own conditions at a vital needs biological level. And that's going to create a radical 
change and what the values that human beings have is. And that's how we're going to get to liberation. We just have to make the conditions of society such that man himself is remade, not to be able to tolerate a capitalist society. Such a practice, Marcuse says, involves a break with the familiar, the routine ways of seeing, hearing, feeling, understanding things, so that the organism may become receptive to the potential forms of a non-aggressive, non-exploitative world. No matter how remote from these notions the rebellion may be, no matter how destructive and self-destructive it may appear, no matter how great the distance between the middle class revolt in the metropoles and the life and death struggle of the wretched of the earth, so he's read Fanon by this point, hasn't he? A common to them, uh, common to them is the depth of the refusal. It makes them reject the rules of the game that is rigged against them. The ancient strategy of patience and persuasion, the great re- the reliance on the goodwill in the establishment and its false and immoral comforts, its cruel affluence, the cruel affluence of the most prosperous societies on the planet that have lifted more people out of poverty, ended more abject human suffering. That cruel affluence is what we have to completely refuse and break and destroy because apparently it's somehow a game that's rigged against people who don't want to engage in productive work but only want to do, quote, non-necessary things. Yeah, well, that's kind of true, but not the way that he intends. So section one, this is the point of this. Finally, we get to it, a biological foundation for socialism, question mark. In the affluent society, capitalism comes into its own, capital own, capital O own. It's interesting. The two mainsprings of this of its dynamic, the escalation of commodity production and productive exploitation, join and permeate all dimensions of private and public existence. So basically he's saying that in the affluent capitalist society, what you have is we constantly try to become more productive and that's exploitative so that we can produce more commodities and purchase more commodities and pretend that that means happiness. And it's going to, that, that particular thing, that escalation of commodity production and productive exploitation permeates all dimensions of private and public existence. It touches every aspect of your life, everywhere you go, which is what he considers a one-dimensional existence because it doesn't have a critical existence, a second dimension added to it. That's the point of one-dimensional man. The available material and intellectual resources, the potential of liberation, that is what he means by that, it's in parentheses, have so much outgrown the established institutions that only the systematic increase in waste, destruction, and management keeps the system going. Kind of a dark read on things. The opposition which escapes suppression by the police, the courts, the representatives of the people, and the people themselves finds ex- finds expression in the diffused rebellion among the youth and the intelligentsia, and in the daily struggle of the persecuted minority. So this is where he's trying to form a very Maoist coalition between the youth, the intelligentsia, which is a very specific term to people. It means people who believe in Marxian theory. They're intelligent enough to understand it, obviously and the persecuted minorities. The armed class struggle is waged outside by the wretched of the earth who fight the affluent monster. So poor people are fighting rich people. Class struggle right there. The critical analysis of this society calls for new categories, moral, political, aesthetic. So he's going to try to make a whole new map for a whole new liberated world. I shall try to develop them, he says, in the course of this discussion. The category of obscenity will serve as an introduction. The society 
is obscene in producing and indecently exposing a stifling abundance of wares while depriving its victims abroad of the necessities of life. So he says, this society, American society, has all this richness while the third world sucks. And so that is obscene to him. Obscene in stuffing itself and its garbage cans while poisoning and burning the scarce foodstuffs in the fields of its aggression. Obscene in the words and smiles of its politicians and entertainers, in its prayers and its ignorance, and in the wisdom of its kept intellectuals. He's not a very chipper guy here, is he? Obscenity is a moral concept in the verbal arsenal of the establishment, which abuses the term by applying it not to expressions of its own morality, but to those of another. Obscene is not the picture of a naked woman who exposes her pubic hair, but that of a fully clad general who exposes his medal, his medals rewarded in a, in a war of aggression. Okay, so he's going to start flipping over. He's going to do a deconstruction here of the term obscene. It's not the picture of a naked woman who exposes her pubic hair, but that of a fully clad general who exposes his medals rewarded in a evil war. Obscene is not the ritual of the hippies, but the declaration of a high dignitary of the church that war is necessary for peace. Except, as I've talked about in repressive tolerance, that's actually true. You actually do have to be able to defend yourself or somebody else's war is going to come to your door. It's a naive belief that you can stop all of the bad people in the world and then we would have world peace. This is a very naive view. And it's one thing for students that he hangs out with to believe it. That's another thing for a man getting close to his 70s to still believe this by 1969. Linguistic therapy, that is, the effort to free words and thereby concepts from the all but total distortions of their meanings by the establishment, demands the transfer of moral standards and of their validation from the establishment to the revolt against it. Linguistic therapy. In other words, now we're going to start screwing with the meanings of words. In other words, he's saying, Iron Law of Woke Projection, that the establishment is twisting the meanings of words, total distortion of their meanings, and that this is going to have to be freed up. We have to liberate the language from the evil establishment. Similarly, he writes, the sociological and political vocabulary must be radically reshaped. It must be stripped of its false neutrality. It must be methodologically and provocatively moralized in terms of the refusal. So he's saying, literally, we have to, this is what's happened too. We have to remake the language to be useful to his ideology. This is the abuse of language that leads to the abuse of power that two years after this essay came out, the Catholic philosopher Joseph Piper indicated is where totalitarianism comes from. It is where doublespeak arises. It is new speak in Orwellian language. Okay. And he's saying, the sociological and political, this is Herbert Marcuse, the sociological and political vocabulary must be radically reshaped. It must be stripped of its false neutrality. It must be methodologically and provocatively moralized in terms of his agenda, which is exactly what they've done with hundreds of terms. Thus my encyclopedia on new discourses that I write. Morality is not necessarily and not primarily ideological, he says. In the face of an amoral society, it becomes a political weapon, an effective force which drives people to burn their draft cards, to ridicule national leaders, to demonstrate in the streets, and an unfold sign saying, Thou shalt not kill in the nation's churches. The reaction to obscenity is shame, usually interpreted as the, the, the physiological manifestation of the sense of guilt accompanying the transgression of a taboo. 
The obscene exposures of the affluent society normally provoke neither shame nor a sense of guilt, although this society violates some of the most fundamental moral taboos of civilization. You can do you feel that that you get your paramoral, you know, and the psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism. We talked about the abuse of language and power. I talked about how they use the abuse of language to create a paralogical structure that enforces their pseudo real beliefs about how the world works, their fake pseudo reality, and that they attach moralizing language, which we just heard him say. Uh, they attach moralizing language to create a paramoral, paramoral uh, system where fake morality that lives alongside real morality is going to rise up at what, what, what was described by Nietzsche as a slave morality is going to come up and replace from within the uh, prevailing morality. And he is actually saying here that um, what he's doing here, the obscene exposures of the affluent society normally provoke neither shame nor a sense of guilt, although this society violates some of the most fundamental moral taboos of civilization. So he's now trying to point out how this society, meaning American society or Western civilization, is a complete failure, how it's a completely immoral project. He's creating a new slave morality from within. Go read Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals to, if you don't understand what that's about. That's going to subvert the moral dimension of, of Western civilization and American life. And that's exactly what his project, the new left project that arose from him, has led to in the past 50 years since this, this was written. The term obscenity belongs to the sexual sphere. Shame and the sense of guilt arise in the Oedipal situation. Remember that he's very Freudian, Eros and civilization. He's kind of nodding to that. We're not going to get deep into that right now. If this respect, if in this respect, social morality is rooted in sexual morality, then the shamelessness of the affluent society and its effective repression of the sense of guilt would indicate a decline of shame and guilt feeling in the sexual sphere. And indeed, the exposure of the, for all practical purposes, naked body is permitted and even encouraged, and the taboos on pre- and extramarital intercourse are considerably relaxed. Thus, we are faced with a contradiction that the liberalization of sexuality provides an instinctual basis for the repressive and aggressive power of this affluent society. This is kind of one of those reasons why you kind of get the feeling that Marcuse wanted to have orgies more or less. Um, the contradiction can be resolved, he says. This contradiction can be resolved if we understand that the liberalization of the establishment's own morality takes place within the framework of effective controls. So they tell you you're being made more free, that you have more freedom, that you can see naked bodies, you can relax Victorian sexual and post-Victorian sexual uh, repression but we're going to keep a lot of strict controls on you still. So they pretend to give you freedom, but they give you false freedom. They give you limited freedom that they control. That's his, his accusation here. Kept within this framework, the liberalization strengthens the cohesion of the whole. The relaxation of taboos alleviates a sense of guilt and binds that with considerable ambivalence, the free individuals libidinally to institutionalized fathers. They are powerful, but also tolerant fathers, so this is a very Freudian analysis. He's basically saying that they're by relaxing the taboos, they get you to um, to bind you. They bind you, bind free individuals libidinally. So that's like your libido to the institutionalized fathers that control the parameters upon which these taboos have been relaxed. They are powerful but also tolerant fathers whose management of the nation and its economy delivers and protects the liberties of the citizens. On the other hand, if the violation of taboos transcends the sexual sphere and leads to refusal and rebellion, 
The sense of guilt is not alleviated and repressed, but rather transferred. Not we, but the fathers are guilty. They are not tolerant, but false. They want to redeem their own guilt by making us, the sons, guilty. They have created a world of hypocrisy and violence in which we do not wish to live. Instinctual revolt turns into political rebellion. Against the union, the establishment mobilizes its full force. Sorry, and against this union, the establishment mobilizes its full force. So here he's, he's arguing, this is a very Freudian argument. Marcuse's goal was to m- marry Marx and Freud, to put them as one theory that works together. And so he's got this idea that, oh, well, they're trying to control, they're trying to relax taboos to bring you in and they're going to bind you. They're, oh, they're, they're, they're great, blah, blah, blah. But if you go a step further outside and say, no, your controls are still garbage. And it's not just going to be this extra sexual freedom that you're that we're getting and we're going to go into a refusal and rebellion against your entire project everything reverses and we see that these people leading the society are actually not tolerant they're false they're actually the perverts who want to redeem their own guilt by making us the sons guilty they are the hypocrites they are the violent and we don't want to live in the world and that what he's saying is the establishment will not let that happen so that's the argument that he's making that justifies the need for liberation this union so the union is the union against the establishment provokes such a response because it reveals the prospective scope of social change at this stage of development very freudian the extent to which the radical political practice involves a cultural subversion There's your genealogy of moral slave morality, a radical cultural subversion. The refusal with which the opposition confronts the existing society is affirmative in that it envisages a new culture which fulfills the humanistic promises betrayed by the old culture. Political radicalism thus implies moral radicalism, the emergence of a morality which might precondition man for freedom. This radicalism activates the elementary, organic foundation of morality in the human being. Prior to all ethical behavior, in accordance with specific social standards, prior to all ideological expression, morality is a disposition of the organism, perhaps rooted in the erotic drive to counter aggressiveness, to create and preserve ever greater unities of life. We would then have this side of all values, values as in scare quotes, an instinctual foundation for solidarity among human beings a solidarity which has been effectively repressed in line with the requirements of class society but which now appears as a precondition for liberation so if we can just get a whole new morality we can just create a whole new morality that subverts the existing morality through a very radical political radicalism and moral radicalism that it's founded upon We can just have a complete reversal of the morality of society. And we can get that down to understand that it's at the level of the disposition of the organism. And maybe that has something to do with the erotic drives, because Eros and Civilization and Freud and all of that. Then we have the the keys to to a liberated, to a solidarity that can lead us to a liberated um, society eventually. So that's what he's saying. We have to subvert the entire morality of the society and create a whole new morality in line with the way they think. To the degree to which this foundation is itself historical and the malleability of, quote, human nature reaches into the depths of man's instinctual na- structure, in, sorry, reaches into the depths of man's instinctual structure 
changes in morality may, quote, sink down into the biological dimension and modify organic behavior. So if we can just change morality far enough and force people to live in a new moral order long enough, maybe, maybe we can create a new man. And that those changes in morality will sink down into the biological dimension and modify his organic behavior so that he wants different things. So if we can just change the system, change the morals, then we can change, we can force man to change to adapt to that. We can make man evolve to live within this new moral totalitarianism, which he would not identify as that called liberation. And then we have the right preconditions for a liberated society just by forcing man to live in this new morality until he changes his very nature, his very human nature at the biological level. New Soviet man stuff all over again. But no, that was a bad idea, but this is a good idea because real communism has never been tried, I suppose. Right, Herbert Marcuse? Once a specific morality, he writes, is firmly established as a norm of social behavior, it is not only introjected, it also operates as a norm of organic behavior. The organism receives and reacts to a certain stimuli and ignores and repels others in accord with the introjected morality, which is thus promoting or impeding the function of the organism as a living cell in the respective society. So we have collectivism there. Individual is a living cell in the respective society that it is now obligated to serve. There's, of course, truth in that metaphor, but it's also a little worrying given where it's coming from. But we're again, we're hearing that if we can just change the morality, we can interject that into people. And then it becomes a norm. And then the organic behavior starts to change. And then the stimuli are going to lead the organism to change over time by promoting or impeding the function of the organism in his society. In this way, a society constantly recreates this side of... <laughs> in this way, a society constantly recreates this side of consciousness and ideology, patterns of behavior and aspiration as part of the, quote, nature of its people. And unless the revolt reaches into this, quote, second nature, into these ingrown patterns, social change will remain, quote, incomplete even self-defeating. So this side of consciousness and ideology, society is going to continue to reinscribe. Human beings are not going to change at a fundamental biological nature or level where their human nature is involved. And unless we can actually change everything down to the level of human nature, ingrown patterns of human beings, social change will remain incomplete and even self-defeating. This is a scary document, y'all. The so-called consumer economy, he just switches to this, and the politics of corporate capitalism have created a second nature of man. So he's going to now say that, oh, the conditions that we live in have made people the wrong way. So we're going to make them a new way. The so-called consumer economy and the politics of corporate capitalism have created a second nature of man, which ties him libidinally and aggressively to the commodity form. Eros and civilization. So his sexuality is wrapped up. It's actually, he argues in Eros and civilization that it's repressed to the use of productive work. People have their, their, their libido is subverted to create productive work and to enjoy the fruits of a consumerist society. So, you know, you get your new car rather than living truly in your libidinal ego uh, or it, I suppose. And that is actually shaping man to believe that that's how man should live consumerist rather than his, you know, more raw primal libidinous form. 
the need for process uh, sorry the need so this is what he said it gives rise to the need for possessing consuming handling and constantly renewing the gadgets devices instruments engines offered to and imposed upon the people for using these wares even at the danger of one's one's destruction one's own destruction has become a quote biological need in the sense just defined the second nature of man thus militates against any change that would disrupt and perhaps even abolish this dependence of man on a market ever more densely filled with merchandise abolish his existence as a consumer consuming himself and buying and selling the needs generated by the system are thus eminently stabilizing conservative needs the counter-revolution anchored in the instinctual structure He's literally arguing, in case you haven't quite caught what's going on here, it's a lot of fancy words, that the living in a capitalist society, a consumer capitalist society, in fact, a consumerist capitalism, has wired man biologically to need, to possess, to consume, to handle, to constantly renew his gadgets, his devices, his instruments, and his engines. You become a... Homo economicus, almost that you, but in a in a very real sense, that you actually have a biological need to continue participating in consumer culture, and that is like an advanced level of false consciousness that becomes a instinctual nature, like you have biologically been made into an instinctual economic creature, consumer creature, and that is the problem. That's what militates against any change that would disrupt or perhaps abolish this dependence of man on a market ever more densely filled with merchandise. And it's the man has been made into something that understands his existence as a consumer. That's a common uh, neo-Marxist critique. But what does he consume? Himself in buying and selling. And so he says this means that you create a conservative, eminently stabilizing instinct. The counter-revolution against his woke revolution, as it came down, or neo-Marxist liberation, is anchored in the in instinctual structure because the consumer society changes man at a biological level to continue to want to be a consumer capitalist. And this is the thing he wants to fight against in this essay. This is the thing he says is the place where liberation begins, is at that biological level. The market has always been one, he says, of exploitation and thereby domination ensuring the class structure of society doesn't understand how things work but this is common to marxists they believe that you can have a completely equal completely egalitarian society that's just going to work out and that's one of the false beliefs of communism that completely misunderstands this is what eo wilson was talking about when he said that communism is a great idea for but the wrong species it works great in ants but we aren't ants and it doesn't really work great in ants because their queen is like completely treated differently and so what you have under, if it is communism that ants and bees enact, you have a very small percentage that get everything and everybody else is their slave. Maybe that works out for their species, but it doesn't work out for humans. That's E.O. Wilson's point. And communists have never understood this, and Marcuse doesn't understand this. However, he writes, the productive processes of advanced capitalism, Oh, sorry, the productive process of advanced capitalism has altered the form of domination. The technological veil covers the brute presence and the operation of the class interest in the merchandise. Is it still necessary to state that not technology, not technique, not the machine or the engines of repression, but the presence in them 
of the masters who determine their number, their lifespan, their power, their place in life, and the need for them. Is it still necessary to repeat that science and technology are the great vehicles of liberation, and that it is only their use and restriction in the repressive society which makes them into vehicles of domination? So he says it's just totally obvious. Do we even have to say it anymore? That it's not the existence of technology, but the people who have control over it who are the problem. The capitalists themselves are the problem. And if we could free up science and technology, machines, technique, technology, from their clutches and put it in the hands of the critical theorists, then we could have the greatest vehicles of liberation. So we could create a new Soviet science or a, you know, anti-whiteness science that gets away from white supremacy. Then we could use science and technology as great vehicles of liberation, just like Trofim Lysenko tried to do with his Soviet science. Great idea. Again, same mistakes being made again. He says, not the automobile is repressive, not the television set is repressive, not the household gadgets are repressive, but the automobile, the television, the gadgets which produced in accordance with the requirements of profitable exchange have become part and parcel of the people's own existence, own actualization. So it's not the existence of cars or televisions or gadgets that causes the problem. No, it's that they're made for profit. That's the problem. So this is a really strong railing against the idea of capitalism again. In defiance of the absolute and abject failure of, social, of socialist societies to ever produce successfully. I think I, I saw a thing recently that said in the Soviet Union, you had three hats to choose from. Three, because that's all it could produce. Because there is no innovation. Look at Cuba. All the cars are still from like 1950. All the design is from, from, from a, over a half century ago. Because it has no capacity for innovation. No capacity for entrepreneurship. It doesn't allow those things. So Marcuse doesn't understand whatsoever. But he thinks that the profitable exchange is the problem. So if we can just get away from that. And if we can make people not need profit at the biological level then we have the chance because he's saying that the requirements of profitable, profitable exchange have become part and parcel to people's own existence, their own actualization, what it means to become who they are. Thus, they have to buy part and parcel of their own existence on the market. That's where you're buying and selling yourself. The existence is, this existence is the realization of capital. The naked class interest, he writes, builds the unsafe and obsolescent automobiles, and through them promotes destructive energy. The class interest employs the mass media for, adver for the advertising of violence and stupidity, for the creation of captive audiences. So he's talking about, for example, cars are going to go obsolete, and so the companies that make them often do plan obsolescence so that you'll have to buy another one, and that that's them screwing you over in some important way, but that this is turning you into a, a rampant consumer. And then the television the media are making you stupid, which is kind of funny in the given moment. It's really funny in the given moment. Um, the class interest employs the mass media for the advertising of violence and stupidity for the creation of captive audiences. So that's the problem. In doing so, he writes, the masters only obey the demand of the public of the masses. The famous law of supply and demand establishes the harmony between the rulers and the ruled. This harmony is indeed pre-established to the degree to which the masters have created the public which asks for their wares and asks for them ever more insistently if it can release 
in and through the wares, it's frustration and the aggressiveness resulting from this frustration. So he's saying that there's that the, the people who control the production in society are brainwashing people to want certain things. They've created the public that believes that this is the way life should be, that this is the ideal life, and that they're going to ask for these products, and they're going to do things like they're going to do retail therapy. They're, they have a frustration with the, with the emptiness and the stress of their life that's caused by having to live in this consumerist economy. And if they could just they could just get some relief by participating even further in it. And that's what they're gonna is gonna sell the best. Those wares that help release their frustration and the aggressiveness resulting from the frustration, which of course he's going to interpret for in a Freudian sense as the subversion of the libidinous id, the libidinous drive, the libido to the need to produce. Because this is how Marcuse thinks. So he's fusing Marx and Freud. Self-determination, he writes, the autonomy of the individual asserts itself in the right to race his automobile, to handle his power tools, to buy a gun, to communicate to mass audiences his opinion, no matter how ignorant, how aggressive it may be. Yeah, it's kind of cool, isn't it? Organized capitalism has sublimated and turned to socially productive use, frustration, and primary aggressiveness on an unprecedented scale. Unprecedented not in terms of the quantity of violence, but rather in terms of its capacity to produce long-range contentment and satisfaction, to reproduce the voluntary servitude. To be sure, frustration, unhappiness, and sickness remain the basis of this sublimation, but the productivity and the brute power of the system still keep the basis well under control. This is this whole this is a whole paragraph ranting about how they produce false consciousness in people to keep them trapped in the capitalist system and to shape them at the instinctual level. The achievements, he writes, justify the system of domination. So you say, but look, you have an iPhone. Look how great it is. We have airplanes. We have achievements. Everything's great. Look, people have everything they need. They can go to the store and buy 50 flavors of cereal. The achievements justify the system of domination. Why are you complaining? We have airplanes. The achievements justify the system of domination. Well, because some of those achievements, by the way, Herbert, are the dramatic reduction of poverty, the dramatic reduction of starvation, the dramatic reduction of infant mortality, the dramatic reduction of uh, preventable disease and suffering. That's why. That's why the dramatic increase in freedom, the dramatic increase in pursuing one's dreams, the dramatic increase in being able to live the life that somebody wants, free of the kinds of toil and oppression that always accompany a dysfunctional or non-existent society. That's why the achievements do justify the system. It's not a system of domination if you participate in it. You have the opportunity in a system like this. This is the fundamental failure for people like Herbert Marcuse and the woke. They don't understand that because they don't want to take responsibility ultimately. The established values, he writes, become the people's own values. Adaptation turns into spontaneity, autonomy, and the choice between social necessities appears as freedom. Everything is fake. It's not real freedom. In this sense, the continuing exploitation is not only hidden behind the technological veil, but actually transfigured. The capitalist production relations are responsible not only for the servitude and toil, but also, because going to work sucks, obviously, but also for the greater happiness and fun available to the majority of the population, and they deliver more goods than before. Did you catch that? Exploitation isn't just hidden, it's actually transfigured into happiness and fun. And more stuff. And man, isn't that terrible. 
That's his mentality. That's what we need liberating from. Essay on Liberation. Thanks for joining me on the New Discourses podcast with Herbert Marcuse's Insanity yet again. Neither, he writes, neither its vastly increased capacity to produce the commodities of satisfaction, yeah, because satisfaction is terrible, nor the peaceful management of class conflicts, yeah, because peace is terrible, rendered possible by this capacity, cancels the essential features of capitalism, namely the private appropriation of surplus value, steered but not abolished by government intervention, and its realization in the corporate interest. So corporations exist, corporations make big money, people have private property, they produce value through their labor, some of it's surplus because the people who run corporations are able to put a vision to build in a positive some way what's going on with people's work and talent and labor and pay them a wage that they agreed to be paid, which is a fair wage, because they agreed to be paid that for that effort. None of this vastly increased capacity to be satisfied or have peace, none of it cancels out the fact that capitalism still is happening. That's his argument. That's his whole argument. Capitalism, he writes, reproduces itself by transforming itself. And this transformation is mainly in the improvement of exploitation. Do exploitation and domination cease to be what they are and what they do to man if they are no longer suffered? Are you actually being exploited and dominated if you're not being, if you have no suffering in it? That's If they are compensated, that's in scare quotes, by previously unknown comforts, does labor cease to be debilitating if mental energy increasingly replaces physical energy in producing the goods and services which sustain a system that makes hell large areas of the globe? Like when they opened China a few years later after Deng Xiaoping, a few years after this was written, after Mao's horror, and I mean a couple decades, Deng Xiaoping opens up the Chinese markets, subject still to the CCP, but he opens it up and a billion people are raised out of abject poverty for the first time. As horrible as the Chinese regime is, this is probably single the single most humanitarian act in human history, not to give any excuses for what's going on there. A billion people raised out of abject poverty, a billion people by opening up markets, capitalist markets. The capitalist markets that were suppressed and destroyed by Mao, who was going to bring in Leninism or Marxist Leninism with Chinese characteristics and was at the time of this essay, which Herbert Marcuse praised. Pardon me if I don't accept his claims about systems that make hell large areas of the globe. And an affirmative answer, he says, would justify any form of oppression. Yeah, if stuff is great, you could keep doing it, which keeps the populace calm and content, while a negative answer would deprive the individual of being the judge of his own happiness. Yeah, you're going to tell us who gets to be the judge. You're telling everybody that they're miserable in their happiness, Marcuse. That's what you're literally telling us. And you're saying, well, we can't deprive people of the ability to say whether or not they're happy. Like, screw you, dude. Okay, back to him. The notion that happiness is an objective condition which demands more than subjective feelings has been effectively obscured. Its validity depends on the real solidarity of the species man, that's in scare quotes, which a society divided into antagonistic classes and nations cannot achieve. False. Actually false. It's just false. He's just wrong. If there's 
if there are, well, the antagonistic part of the classes, but if the classes actually operate largely in harmony with one another, which can actually happen when people are getting what they feel they are due for what they're doing, he just said creates peaceful solutions to class divisions. That's what, what our society is producing. And he says, well, this is a problem. This is a huge problem. And he says, we can't actually have that because because it, 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 it's bad because it doesn't create real solidarity of the species. As long as this is the history of mankind, the state of nature, no matter how refined, uh, the state of nature, no matter how refined, prevails. A civilized helium omnium contra omnis, in which the happiness of the ones must coexist with the suffering of others. The first international was the last attempt to realize the solidarity of the species by grounding it in that social class in which the subjective and objective interests, the particular and the universal, coincided. What's the first international? The Communist Party. What is this sentence? For those of you who don't believe me that this is fundamentally Hegelian, this is Hegel. This is Hegel. The first international, first international Communist Party, was the last attempt to realize the solidarity of the species by grounding it in that social class in which the subjective and objective interest, the particular and the universal, these are fundamental opposites, subjective, objective, thesis, antithesis, and particular, universal, thesis, antithesis. And he says, the last time that this happened by grounding it in that social class in which the subjective and objective interest, the particular and the universal, coincided. Synthesis. The international is the late concretization of the abstract philosophical concept of man as man, human being. Oh, God, there's a German word. Uh, Gott, I'm terrible. Gottungwesen. I think I got it. Which plays a decisive role in Marx's and Engels' early writings. Okay, so Marx and Engels were talking about communism, but concretization of the abstract. What was Hegel's take on the dialectic? Abstract, negative, concrete. The international is the late concretization of the abstract philosophical concept of man as man, human being, which plays a decisive role in Marx's and Engels' early writings. He's telling you what he's all about here. Then the Spanish Civil War aroused the solidarity, which is the driving power of liberation, in the unforgettable, hopeless fight of a tiny minority against the combined forces of fascist and liberal capitalism. Here, in the international brigades, which with their poor weapons withstood overwhelming technical superiority, was the union of young intellectuals and workers, the union which has become the desperate goal of today's radical opposition. That went real well. Attainment of this goal is thwarted by the integration of the organized and not only the organized laboring class into a system of advanced capitalism. Under its impact, the distinction between the real and the immediate interest of the exploited has collapsed. I'm telling you, they don't like the fact that we figured out blended economies. This distinction, far from being an abstract idea, was guiding the strategy of the Marxist movements, right? They don't like that we figured out that you can have blended economies. They wanted poor people to suffer until they became revolutionaries. And they are going to lecture us about the moral high ground. The guiding strategy of the Marxist movements was for that to not happen. They hate the idea that we came up with social safety nets, for example. It expressed the necessity transcending 
the economic struggle of the laboring classes to extend wage demands and demands for the improvement of working conditions to the political arena, to drive the class struggle to the point at which the system itself would be at stake, to make foreign as well as domestic policy, the national as well as the class interest, the target of this struggle, the real interest, the attainment of conditions in which man could shape his own life, was that of no longer subordinating his life to the requirements of profitable production to an apparatus controlled by the forces beyond his control, and the attainment of such conditions meant the abolition of capitalism. So that's Marxism. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, we had a goal, we had a strategy, we had a way, Marxists had a way to get to communism, to get to a utopia, and it depended on the poor suffering and suffering more and suffering more and suffering more until they hated it and became revolutionaries and overthrew the, the whole society, created socialism that would then march on to capitalism or communism. And these people stole it from us. They stole it from us by coming up with blended, blended economies. We should have let the poor suffer. We should have made them suffer more and more and more and more, exactly like Lenin did. And that's how we would have, get, would have got there. That was the guiding strategy of Marxist movements. And the attainment of such conditions meant the abolition of capitalism, which is the only thing they actually care about. Not people. Their stupid ideology and the, abolish, the abolition of capitalism. It is not simply the higher standard of living, he writes, the illusory bridging of the consumer gap between the rulers and the ruled, which has obscured the distinction between the real and the immediate interest of the ruled. Marxian theory soon realized, soon recognized that impoverishment does not necessarily provide the soil for revolution. Yeah, it turns out uh, if, you, <laughs> if you just make people's lives miserable, they just kind of become miserable. That a highly developed consciousness and imagination may generate a vital need for radical change in advanced material conditions. The power of corporate capitalism has stifled the emergence of such a consciousness and imagination. Its mass media have adjusted the rational and emotional faculties of its market and its policies and steered them to the defense of its dominion. The narrowing of the consumption gap has rendered possible the mental and instinctual coordination of the laboring classes. The majority of organized labor shares the stabilizing counter-revolutionary needs of the middle classes as evidenced by their behavior as consumers of the material and cultural merchandise by their emotional revulsion against the nonconformist intelligentsia. Again, same thing. The poor weren't made to suffer enough. We figured out ways to give them contentment. We figured out ways to make the working class happy to give them a upward mobility, to give them to, to close the gap in consumption, to establish a middle class, to bring people up out of abject poverty, and that sucks. That's his message here. We were going to be able to have our Marxist revolutions if we could have just figured out the missing piece, but no, we had to go and make the poor people happy. We had to make them content. We had to make them comfortable. And now they're not going to be revolutionary. Now they're going to be stabilizing, counter-revolutionary. Now they're going to consume the material and cultural merchandise that they can afford because they're not suffering all the time. And they're going to have emotional revulsion against the nonconformist Marxists. That's what intelligentsia means. Conversely, where the consumer gap is still wide, where the capitalist culture has not yet reached into every house or hut, the system of stabilizing needs has its limits. The glaring contrast between the privileged class and the exploited class leads to a radicalization of the underprivileged. See? See, if we can just find people who are not winning in society and stoke their grievance and make them suffer more and make them realize how bad it is, then they will run a revolution for us. And who does he identify? This is the case of the ghetto population and the unemployed in the United States. 
This is also the case of the laboring classes in the more backwards capitalist countries. By virtue of its basic position, I'll just leave that sentence to stand, the ghetto populations. If you've ever wondered, by the way, I won't let it stand. If you've ever wondered if the neo-Marxists are using black people and other racial minorities for their stupid communism, there's your proof. Yes, they are. They're using them for that. Do you think it's for them? No, it's not going to benefit them. They're using them. And the more they suffer, the more they think their society sucks, the better for the neo-Marxists. Continuing. By virtue of its basic position in the production process, by virtue of its numerical weight and the weight of exploitation, the working class is still the historical agent of revolution. Historical, dialectical materialism, Hegel, yes. I know that dialectical materialism was Marx, not Hegel. But the idea is that history is going to progress according to a certain trajectory. The working class is the historical agent of revolution. By virtue of its sharing the stabilizing needs of the system, so by becoming people who aren't abjectly poor and miserable, it has become a conservative, even counter-revolutionary force. Sorry, poor people, you started to have a good life and you like it, and now you're now you're not revolutionaries anymore. You've lost, you have false consciousness. That's Herbert Marcuse for you. You should suffer more, so you'll do my revolution for me. That's Herbert Marcuse. Objectively, and that's Herbert Marcuse echoing Lenin. Objectively, in itself, labor is still the potentially revolutionary class. Subjectively, for itself, it is not, because they've been made content and happy. This theoretical conception has concrete significance in the prevailing situation in which the working class may help to circumscribe the scope and the targets of political practice. In the advanced capitalist countries, radicalization of the working classes is counteracted by a socially engineered arrest of consciousness, by making people happy, by giving them pop culture, by giving them things to do, to enjoy their lives, to giving them enough money to be comfortable that they've earned in their jobs, by paying them reasonably fair wages, and by the development and satisfaction of the needs. (laughs) So let's, let's go back. In the advanced capitalist countries, the radicalization of the working class is counteracted by a socially engineered arrest of consciousness and by the development and satisfaction of needs, which perpetuate the servitude of the exploited. Of course, you got to add that part. By satisfying their needs, they're not revolutionaries anymore. They can't be radicalized, and that's what he's against. Satisfying the needs of the poor, that's what he's against. This is an evil ideology. A vested interest in the existing system is thus fostered in the instinctual structure of the exploited. He's going to name people exploited who maybe enjoy their lives, their their comfortable middle-class existence, and you were supposed to be poor, you were supposed to lead our revolution, and damn it, now the capitalist society's figured out how to steal you away from us. That's his view. These people do not care about actual suffering. They think that only if we get rid of all suffering all over is any suffering actually taken care of. And therefore, everybody who suffers that's brought out of suffering becomes a problem because now we're not going to be able to get away all suffering because some people, you know, we're not going to have enough people for our revolution who are going to be radicalized or able to be radicalized. It's literally sadistic. Um, A vested interest in the existing system is thus fostered in the instinctual instinctual structure, by the way, biological, of the exploited and the rupture with the continuum of repression, a necessary precondition of liberation, does not occur. It follows that the radical change, which is to transform the existing society into a free society, and this is a hell of a 
claim must reach into a dimension of the human existence hardly considered in Marxian theory, the biological dimension in which the vital imperative needs and satisfactions of man assert themselves. Inasmuch as these needs and satisfactions reproduce a life in servitude, liberation presupposes changes in this biological dimension. That is to say, different instinctual needs, different reactions of the body as well as the mind. We have to change man biologically to get him away from this uh, consumer capitalist society so that he'll want different things at the instinctual level and reject things the way that we do. And we're going to subvert the morality of society until we can interject these new poisoned critical theory morals into people, make them hate everything, and get them to desire revolution more than they desire the good life. And it's going to have to happen at the biological dimension as a precondition for liberation. Liberation presupposes changes in this biological dimension. That's Herbert Marcuse. The qualitative difference between the existing societies and a free societies affects all needs and satisfactions beyond the animal level. That is to say, all those which are essential to the human species, man as rational animal. All these needs and satisfactions are permeated with the exigent, uh, exigencies of profit and exploitation. I said that wrong. The entire realm of competitive performances and standardized fun, all the symbols of status, prestige, power, and advertised virility and charm of commercialized beauty, this entire realm kills in its citizens the very disposition, the organs for the alternative, freedom without exploitation. Having fun, having access to status, prestige, power, money, virility and charm, commercialized beauty, blah, 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 this all kills your radical spirit. You'll never want to be a revolutionary if you like your life. That's his argument. We got to change it at the biological level. You want these things. You want to see advertisements with hot chicks. That's why you won't go in our revolution. And what do they do? Look at the advertisements now. Ugly people, androgynous people, upside down world. Why? Got to change the instinctual needs of people by interjecting this into them until they change at that level. Triumph in the end of interjection, the stage where the people cannot reject the system of domination without rejecting themselves, their own repressive instinctual needs and values. We would have to conclude that liberation would mean subversion against the will and against the prevailing interests of the great majority of the people. Doesn't matter what most people want, doesn't matter how people work, doesn't matter what their will. We have to go against it because liberation implies that. And in this false identification of social and individual needs, he says, in this deep-rooted organic adaptation of the people to a terrible but profitably functioning society lie the limits of democratic persuasion and evolution. On overcoming, on the overcoming of these limits depends the establishment of democracy. And again, communists by democracy mean everybody's exactly equal, so they mean communism, because otherwise somebody's going to have more voice than somebody else, and it's not true democracy. That's a communist word. It is precisely this excessive adaptability of the human organism which propels the perpetuation and extension of the commodity form and with it the perpetuation and extension of the social controls over behavior and satisfaction. Here he quotes, the ever-increasing complexity of the social structure will make some form of regimentation unavoidable. Freedom and privacy may come to constitute antisocial luxuries and their attainment to involve real hardships. In consequence, there may emerge by selection a stock of human beings suited genetically to accept as a matter of course a regimented and sheltered way of life in a teeming and polluted world from which all wilderness and fantasy of nature will have disappeared. The domesticated farm animal 
and the laboratory rodent on a controlled regimen in a controlled environment will then become true models for the study of man. It is thus apparent that food, natural resources, supplies of power, and other elements involved in the operation whoops, in the operation of the body machine and of the individual establishment are not the only factors to be considered in determining the optimum number of people that can live on Earth. Just as important for maintaining the human qualities of life is an environment in which it is possible to satisfy the longing for quiet privacy, independence, initiative, and some open space. And here he's quoting uh, Rene Dubose, Man Adapting, from 1965. Capitalist progress thus not only reduces the environment of freedom, the open space of the human existence, but also the longing the need for such an environment, and in doing so, quantitative progress militates against qualitative change, even if the institutional barriers against radical education and action are surmounted. Doesn't matter that things are getting better. Doesn't matter that we're getting less infant mortality. Doesn't matter that people are better off. Doesn't matter that fewer people are poor. Qualitative change isn't happening. We're not getting into a new world. That's his argument. This is the vicious circle. The rupture with the self-propelling conservative continuum of needs must precede the revolution which is to usher in a free society, but such a rupture itself can be envisaged only in a revolution. A revolution which would be driven by the vital need to be freed from the administered comforts and the destructive productivity of the exploitative society. Freed from smooth heteronomy. In other words, being controlled by outside interests without you even knowing it. False consciousness again. A revolution by which... I'm sorry, a revolution which, by virtue of this biological foundation where then we have a new kind of man operating because of these morals being changed and forced upon people to change at the level of biology, a revolution which would have the chance of turning quantitative technical progress into qualitatively different ways of life precisely because it would be, would be a revolution occurring at a high level of material and intellectual development, so they're going to lead this, of course, one which would enable man to conquer scarcity and poverty. If this idea of a radical transformation is to be more than idle speculation, it must have an objective foundation in the production process of an advanced industrial society and its technical capabilities and their use. So, dark essay, I'm telling you. For freedom, indeed, he says, depends largely on technical progress, on the advancement of science, but this fact easily obscures the essential precondition. In order to become vehicles of freedom, science and technology would have to change their present direction and goals. They would have to be reconstructed in order, or sorry, in accord with a new sensibility, the demands of the life instincts. Then one could speak of a technology of liberation, a product, a product of a scientific imagination free to project and design the forms of a human universe without exploitation and toil, but this Gaia Scienza, the gay science, is conceivable only after the historical break in this continuum of domination as expressive of the needs of a new type of man. So we have to recreate man so that we can recreate science. And when we recreate science, science can be political. And when science is political, we can use our politicized science to create the liberated world. And that's what's happening in medicine. That's what's happening in our sciences right now in universities. This is a catastrophe. This is the same mistake the Soviet Union made. And then after watching the Soviet Union screw it up, Mao was like, yeah, we're going to do that too. And it led to the deaths of probably over 100 million people. And here's Mar Herbert Marcuse like, no, great idea. Granted, the Chinese people hadn't died yet. It was only 1969. 
they had a ways to go till lots of, well, I mean, lots of them did die. More of them had to die still first and nobody knew about it yet. The idea of a new type of man as the member, though not as the builder of a socialist society appears in Marx and Engels and the concept of the quote, all round individual free to engage in the most varying activities. So when we have communism, you can do whatever you want. The most varying activities, as long as it's not like useful stuff, right? It's got to be unnecessary stuff. In the socialist society, corresponding to this idea, the free development of individual faculties would replace the subjection of the individual to the division of labor. But no matter what activities the all-round individual would choose, they would be activities which are bound to lose the quality of freedom if exercised en masse. Because you're not special anymore. And they would be en masse. For even the most authentic socialist society would inherit the, popula inherit the population growth and the mass basis of advanced capitalism. So population growth is a big problem. And people acting in mass, you know, the mass basis of advanced capitalism, that's a problem. That's where socialism is going wrong. The early Marxian example of the free individuals alternating between hunting, fishing, criticizing, and so on had a joking, ironical sound from the beginning, indicative of the impossibility anticipating the ways in which liberated human beings would use their freedom. Liberated from what? Work. However, the embarrassingly ridiculous sound may also indicate the degree to which this vision has become obsolete and pertains to a stage of development of the productive forces which has been surpassed. Because the dialectic must progress. The later Marxian concept implies the continued separation between the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom, between labor and leisure. Not only in time, but also in such a manner that the same subject lives a different life in the two realms. According to this Marxian conception, the realm of necessity would continue under socialism to such an extent that real human freedom would prevail only outside of the entire sphere of socially necessary labor. They don't want to work. Marx rejects the idea that work can never become play. Alienation would be reduced, no, sorry, alienation would be reduced with the produ progressive reduction of the working day, but the latter would remain a day of unfreedom, rational but not free. However, the development of the productive forces beyond their capitalist organization suggests the possibility of freedom within the realm of necessity. The quantitative reduction of necessary labor could turn into quality, freedom, not only uh, not in proportion to the reduction, but rather to the transformation of the working day, the transformation in which the stupefying, eviscerating, pseudo-automatic jobs of capitalist progress would be abolished. So if basically we get far enough in technology, nobody has to work, and we could transform the entire idea of the working day and everybody could be free from what? From work. They just don't want to work. But the construction of such a society presupposes a type of man with a different sensitivity as well as consciousness. Men who would speak a different language, have different gestures, follow different impulses. Men who have developed an instinctual barrier against cruelty, brutality, and ugliness. Such an instinctual transformation is conceivable as a factor of social change only if it enters the social division of labor, the production relations themselves. They would be shaped by men and women who have the good conscience of being human, tender, sensuous, who are no longer ashamed of themselves. For the token of freedom attained, that is, no longer being ashamed of ourselves. 
I'm not quite sure what's going on with the grammar there because he's quoting Nietzsche, but there's a closed quotes and no open quotes. So I'm not going to try to fix it. Uh, Die Frohlich uh, Wissenschaft, Book 3, 275. The imagination of such men and women would fashion their reason and tend to make the process of production a process of creation. This is the utopian conce concept of socialism which envisages the ingression of freedom into the realm of necessity and the union between causality by necessity and causality by freedom. So we don't have to do anything because we want to. We only do it because we want to. Or, sorry, we don't have to do anything because we have to. We only do it because we want to. That's liberation. The first would mean passing from Marx to Fourier, the second from realism to surrealism. A utopian conception? It has been the great real transcending force, the idea nouvelle. In the first powerful rebellion against the whole of the existing society, the rebellion for the total transvaluation of values for qualitatively different way, ways of life, the May Rebellion in France, the graffiti of the Jeunesse and Colère joined Karl Marx and André Breton. The slogan, l'imagination à pouvoir, went well with le comité. God, I can't read French. Went <laughs> well with the Soviets. Um, the piano with the jazz player stood well between the barricades. The red flag well fitted the statue of the author of Les Miserables. So he's talking about images from the May 6, 1968 riots in, in Paris. Uh, various images and how beautiful all this looked. Um, the May Rebellion in France. And striking students in Toulouse demanded the revival of the language of the troubadours, of the Al Albigensians. This new sensibility has become a political force. It crosses the frontier between the capitalist and the communist orbit. It is contagious because the atmosphere, the climate of the established societies carries the virus. So again, there here we see them comparing themselves to viruses. But what you see happening in this essay, this first part of an essay on liberation by Herbert Marcuse, 1969, is him explicitly saying that we have to remake man at the biological dimension to accept liberation by changing the morals, forcing him to live in these new critical theory-based moral worlds, which is what we are experiencing now, especially under things like queer theory, to desire liberation, to make sure that the poor, and especially those in the ghetto populations, as his words, are going to be made to suffer and aware of their suffering, and then we can have a revolution to a completely new fantasy camp utopia that he describes as a liberated democracy. That's what this essay on liberation is actually about. So there are three more parts of this essay. Part two is the new sensibility. We'll turn to that next. Um, it's a very long essay, so thank you for bearing with me as we read through Herbert Marcuse's essay on liberation from 1969. This has been part one.